The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments. Not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hey listeners, before I start today's episode, I would like to play a quick promo for you first. Take a listen. I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? Then this is the right show for you. This show does not spare the graphic details. It will test your endurance. Consider some testimonials from my listeners. Stephanie Jordan said, Some episodes, even for me, I had to take a mental health break from, only to crave more of it. Karen Erdman says, It's like a train wreck you can't turn away from. Anna Scholes, I was looking over my shoulder because I felt like I should have been, or was going to be, arrested for even listening. The offenders profiled in human monsters are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters, available wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is hosted by Morgan. As you can tell by the name, Human Monsters, it talks about despicable people doing despicable things. If you enjoy listening to true crime podcasts that are more on the serious side, with more details, then I believe this is the podcast you are looking for. Remember to check it out and let me know what you think. Now, on to today's case. Kuwait, officially known as the state of Kuwait, is a small country located in Western Asia. Bordering Kuwait is Iraq to its north and northwest, Saudi Arabia in the south, and all along the eastern border you can find the Persian Gulf. Population as of recent is around 4.3 million, and country size-wise, Kuwait is a little less than 7,000 square miles. In other words, Kuwait is pretty tiny, and how tiny? Kuwait is about half the size of Taiwan, an already tiny island nation. But of course, nowhere near as small as Singapore. The capital city is Kuwait City which sits right off the Kuwait Bay on the eastern side of the country. 
A very interesting fact about Kuwait's population is that less than half of the population are actually considered Kuwaiti. As for the rest of the people, they're mostly expats living and working in Kuwait. It's not every day that you hear about a country where its foreign dwellers outnumber its citizens. The official language is Arabic, and ethnically speaking, the people are quite diverse. Nearly half of the population are considered Asians, around 40% are actual Kuwaiti, and the rest are made up of people from other Arab nations, Africa, etc. Religion-wise and not surprisingly, the majority of them are Muslim, Maliki Sunni Islam to be precise, and the other religions people follow include Buddhism, Christianity, or Hinduism. As a Muslim country, Kuwait is an emirate, which basically means they are ruled by an emir, aka the head of state. I know lots of people have probably never been to Kuwait and have very limited knowledge on countries in the Middle East or Western Asia, but make no mistake, Kuwait is considered a developed country with high income, mainly because of its huge oil reserves. It is also the fifth richest country in the world. Its currency, the Kuwaiti dinar, is also the highest valued currency in the world, which is something that definitely surprised me. So a lot of countries in Kuwait's vicinity have an extensive history, such as Iraq and Iran. So what about Kuwait? Let's dive in. It is believed that the country we know of as Kuwait was formed after a post-glacial flooding, and all the land and debris that got washed around from the Tigris and Euphrates River ended up settling along the Persian Gulf, forming present-day Kuwait. In other words, if the flood didn't happen, this country may have never existed, or would have existed elsewhere. First sign of human activity in this region dates back to approximately 8,000 BCE, and starting from around 6,500 BCE during the Ubaid period, Kuwait basically became the point of interaction for Mesopotamia and Eastern Arabia. Since they were located by the Persian Gulf, these people became one of the first in history to conduct maritime trading. Fast forward a few thousand years, we arrive at the Dilmun civilization, and the Mesopotamians eventually decide to move into Phylaka, a Kuwaiti island around 20 kilometers off the coast of Kuwait City. As an island run by Mesopotamians, many people were involved in trading, and during its height, they were even controlling and trading routes around the Persian Gulf. This way of living lasted for about 2,000 years, from 3,000 BCE to 1,000 BCE. Their glory days ended, though, and along came the Kassites of Mesopotamia, who then declared the island as part of the Kassite dynasty of Babylon. The island of Phylaka wasn't just an island some people used to conduct trade. Kings and politicians all spent time there, and temples and palaces were even built to accommodate these high-ranking people. So like most empires in ancient history, the Babylonians withered away, and along came the Archaemenid Empire, where they took over the island and settled there for a couple hundred years. Moving on to a more familiar name, Alexander the Great began to take over many parts of the world, including Kuwait, around the 4th century BCE. Many parts of the nation was renamed to fit Alexander the Great's agenda, and they built plenty of Greek and Hellenistic temples during their time there. 
Kuwait's new name under Greek colonization was Hieros Kolpos, and the island of Phylaka was renamed as Icaros. Their stay was relatively short-lived, and the next group to take over Kuwait was the Parthian Empire around 100 BCE. Then we have the Sassanid Empire in 224 CE, and in 636 CE, the Battle of Chains was fought in Kuwait. The Rashidun Caliphate, a very powerful Muslim empire, was looking to expand, so they came over to Kuwait and fought and won against the Sassanid Empire. This can be considered the beginning of Islam in Kuwait. So under Islamic rule, the country basically became a trading hub and a place for Muslim travelers to stop by. Another religion that made its presence known in Kuwait was Christianity, between the 5th and 9th century CE. A lot of what we know today is due to the type of artifacts historians and archaeologists have found in recent years. Sometimes things are written down and documented, but when that is not available, a quick look around at the type of items and buildings left behind can paint an equally descriptive account of what took place during certain times. Fast forward some more time, we now arrive at around the 14th century, and of course, Europeans do their thing and colonize Kuwait like they do to most other Asian countries. Kuwait City at the time was known as a fishing village, and although the Portuguese were technically in control, they allowed the local sheikhs, or the local tribe's chiefs, to rule the place. The Portuguese allowed this because they forced the locals to pay them tribute. They had no means of fighting back, so they did as they were told, but obviously they didn't enjoy this. The Portuguese basically used their ports and their resources to trade and whatnot, and on top of that, they got paid from the locals. Doesn't seem fair to me. The British eventually managed to drive the Portuguese out of there, and that was the beginning of the British influence over the Persian Gulf. Kuwait continued to grow as a coastal city, serving as a hub for those traveling from or to India, Iraq, and the Arabian Peninsula. The Ottoman-Persian War happened in 1775, where the Ottoman Empire invaded Iraq in pursuit of the city Barsa, and those who wanted to stay out of harm's way at the time ended up in Kuwait. With more skilled laborers and merchants, Kuwait's reputation in maritime activities continued to grow and prosper, which included their skills in shipbuilding. Then the people moved on to horse trading, which is a little random but interesting. They bred horses and exported them, which contributed a huge part to their economic growth. In the late 1890s, the Ottoman Empire, still power-hungry, decided to move in on Kuwait, and the ruler at the time, Sheikh Mubarak, he didn't appreciate this, so Kuwait ended up teaming up with the British government, which essentially made Kuwait a British protectorate. Regardless of its political changes, the country continued to prosper and cities were flourishing. They adopted some of the European ways, such as using typewriters and whatnot, which probably did help them advance and work better at the time. The country was also considered extremely diverse, where people of all race and religion lived and worked together peacefully. But as we know, most good things do come to an end at some point. When World War I started, the British were unhappy with Kuwait's ruler for siding with the enemy, and in retaliation, they put a full stop to many economic activities in Kuwait, 
Starting from the 1920s, a series of battles would take place because the Ikhwan, a Saudi Arabia religious militia, wanted to take over parts of Kuwait. Kuwait, of course, was like, heck no. The Battle of Hamd took place in 1920, then the Battle of Jara, and as the Ikhwan were about to declare victory, the British came in with fighter jets and warships, driving away the Ikhwan. This was not the end, though, as next up was the Kuwait Najd War, where the ruler and founder of Saudi Arabia wanted to take over Kuwait. Between these three battles and wars, it resulted in thousands of casualties and Kuwait getting another economic block from Saudi Arabia. This blockade and constant harassment at the border of Saudi Arabia and Kuwait continued on for years. The Great Depression hit the world in the late 1920s, and as a trading hub for many parts of the world, Kuwait suffered along with everybody else. It also didn't help that Kuwait was friendly with Iraq at this point in time, but for whatever reason, the British didn't approve of their friendship. This eventually gave rise to the Free Kuwaiti Movement, where people began rejecting British rule and demanded the unification of Iraq and Kuwait. Things got a little out of hand, and the British ended up clashing with the supporters of the Free Kuwaiti Movement. The protesters ended up either dead or imprisoned. Seems like everything that could go wrong was going wrong. The economy sucked, and the British were being too controlling. What could help Kuwait out of a terrible situation? For one thing, oil. Yes, the make people rich ingredient. Oil was discovered in the year 1938 in a desert in Kuwait. This helped bring the economy back to life, and starting from around 1946, Kuwait was basically in its golden era mode. Things were starting to look up, the country was becoming rich and stable, which then attracted many foreigners to come live and work in Kuwait. On top of all that, British rule in Kuwait finally ended in 1961. The sheikh at the time, Abdullah al-Salim al-Sabah, then went on to become the emir of Kuwait. Kuwaiti government grew and evolved rapidly, and in no time they were known as the first Arab state of the Persian Gulf to have a constitution and a parliament. Not only that, their standard of living rose by a lot. Everything was modern, and the country overall was considered quite liberal, unlike what most of us would have imagined. This was a huge thing for countries in that specific region, as a lot of the neighboring countries were more conservative and religious, and in contrast, Kuwait was basically the opposite, where personal choice and freedom was valued. Despite all that, there was still a bit of tension when it came to Iraq and Kuwait. Remember, I mentioned that Kuwait wanted to reunite with Iraq, but the British were like, no. Well, now that Kuwait was independent, they enjoyed their independence, but Iraq was still clinging on to the idea of a unification. This caused quite a bit of tension, but eventually, Iraq signed a treaty with Kuwait, recognizing their border and their independence. So there were lots of ups and then there was a down. Beginning from the 1980s, Kuwait would be filled with all sorts of drama, beginning from the stock market crash and oil prices decreasing. Then the Iran-Iraq war broke out in 1980, lasting till 1988. Kuwait was kind of stuck in a terrible position. 
They supported Iraq as they were still very close, but taking sides also meant they would get attacked. There were various bombings, plane hijackings, and even an assassination attempt on the emir at the time. It was very chaotic for Kuwait, but they were tough and stuck it out. As the war ended, they focused on rebuilding, but then Iraq kind of threw another curveball at them. It was over debt money that Iraq owed Kuwait. The two were unable to come to an agreement, so Iraq decided to invade Kuwait in 1990 because how dare they. Words and negotiations didn't help ease the situation, and thus began the war known as the Gulf War. This war didn't last very long, maybe five weeks or so, but there were many casualties, including innocent civilians. The war only ended when the United Nations issued the UN Resolution 678, permitting the use of force to get Iraq to withdraw from Kuwait with a 45-day grace period. And this is how Kuwait was finally freed from this mess. Moving on to more modern days, Kuwait's government was rather unstable from around 2005 to 2010, but on a cool note, women received the right to vote and run for elections in 2005. Kuwait also ranked highest in the Human Development Index ranking in the Arab world. If you're not sure whether that's impressive or not, here are the facts. There are 22 countries in the Arab world, all of them either from the Middle East slash Western Asia region or North Africa. Number 1 out of 22. I would say that's a pretty impressive title. Despite their outstanding reputation though, there were rumors going around stating that Kuwait was the king of terrorism funding especially for ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Whether or not that is true, I cannot confirm, so you are more than welcome to look into that. Now, to end this really long intro, fun facts about Kuwait. I've mentioned quite a few already, such as Kuwaitis being a minority in their own country, and the Kuwaiti dinar being the most valuable currency in the world. The next fact shocked me, but did you know that Kuwait had a large population of obese people? Some say it's due to a largely sedentary lifestyle and too much fast food. And if that's true, I guess it could make sense. Another fact I cannot verify but still interesting nonetheless, gas is cheaper than water. Don't know if that's still true today, but I bet it's hard for most of us to imagine that. Also, Kuwait is very modern, meaning there are lots of cool and tall buildings. The views must be amazing. So thank you for sticking through this really long intro to Kuwait. I get it. I've gotten many reviews saying, I'm not here for a history lesson. And yes, you're right. This is not a history podcast. But the thing is, most of us probably know so little about these countries to begin with. Why not spend a little bit of your time learning it? See how its history can possibly tie into its crimes. Cultural aspects can greatly affect how crimes can be carried out. Honestly, I'd be happy if you even retain one random fact. These country intros might be long, but it takes even more time for me to research and write it out. Well, why don't you just skip it, Jessica? It's non-negotiable, so no. Anyway, today's episode obviously takes place in Kuwait. It's a topic that I've seen come up again and again over the years, but not really limited to Kuwait. It could happen in plenty of places around the world, but the ones that I happened to research both took place in Kuwait. 
Unfortunately, I am back on the assholes murdering woman spree. It sucks that so many crimes follow this certain script. But again, I get it. Women are easier targets. So in this episode, we will be looking at two different women. Their stories share similarities. And I strongly believe this is an ongoing issue for many people in their position, even men included. Their names are Joanna de Mafeliz and Janeline Villavende. Let's begin. Have you ever heard of the acronym OFW? I've heard of two versions, and they're kind of the same, but a little different. I've heard of OFW as Overseas Foreign Worker, as in someone who leaves their country to work elsewhere, and the other one is Overseas Filipino Worker, which is the same as the first one, except in this case, it's specifically describing Filipinos who work abroad. For this episode, we will focus on the latter. It might seem strange, like, why is there a specific category for Filipinos? Don't plenty of people from all around the world leave their country for work? A little bit of background info first. Filipino migrant workers have been known to leave their country for temporary and contract work since the early 1900s. It started with things like helping other countries build things or work in farms. Then, depending on what was going on in the world, they would then be relocated to work on different things. In 1974, the Philippine government enacted a labor code to, quote, ensure the careful selection of Filipino workers for the overseas labor market to protect the good name of the Philippines abroad, unquote. On top of this code, Various government agencies were established specifically to help OFWs. These agencies later on got combined and the Philippine Overseas Employment Administration was born. As of right now, the five countries with the most OFWs are the US, Saudi Arabia, Canada, Malaysia, and the United Arab Emirates. Kuwait may not be on the list, but isn't it interesting that two of the top five are Arab nations. It makes a lot of sense for people to leave whatever they're doing for a better opportunity. And a lot of times that is the case for OFWs. From what I've read and heard, the job market is not the best in the Philippines, which means unemployment rates can get a little high, but not because people are not willing to work. Plenty of Filipinos have higher education with at least a bachelor's degree from a university, and after graduating, they end up experiencing difficulty finding work that pays decent or maybe even work itself. Some other more developed countries may then have a demand for unskilled work or a certain type of labor, and many times they're unable to recruit any people in their own country, possibly due to salary demands or whatever labor shortage reasons. This is when OFWs come in. Pay in the Philippines can be a little bit low, but by accepting even basic labor or a job that has few requirements means they have a shot at a much better salary with a lot of benefits. For example, if country A has a shortage of people to work in construction, then they can go ahead and recruit OFWs to fill this gap. They don't necessarily get paid super well, but significantly higher in comparison to what they would have gotten paid if they had the same job in the Philippines. 
Also, as an OFW, they would receive benefits such as flight fares, accommodation, and meals. Of course, this comes with sacrifices as well, such as having to leave your family behind, many times your spouse or your children. These OFWs tend to be very savvy with their pay, saving and sending money home periodically because they want their family to live a good life. There's also a huge demand for nurses around the world. Many people, women especially, who did study nursing would then have the opportunity to go abroad and work in that country's healthcare system, maybe as nurses or elderly caregivers. So aside from the better pay, what other reasons are there for Filipinos to want to relocate for a job that they never thought of doing? There's a wider choice of career opportunities, and many of these careers don't even require you to have specific qualifications. Sometimes they have basic requirements like university graduate or maybe a certain type of degree or training. But if you knew about this beforehand, you could easily work your way towards this and apply in a field you want. If not, that's not a problem, as there are tons of other jobs out there, and you should be able to find something you can tolerate. Another reason for wanting to become an OFW is to have the opportunity to permanently immigrate to another country. Some countries make obtaining citizenship or a residence permit incredibly difficult, but if you manage to get somewhere not as strict, there's a chance you could eventually obtain residency in that country after living there for a few years. So all in all, there are lots of different reasons why some Filipinos choose this way of life. And it makes sense. Who doesn't want to earn more money? Who doesn't want to have more in life? I see the same in Taiwan. Taiwan has a lot of overseas workers, and many from the Philippines. One major advantage Filipinos have that others don't is the fact that most Filipinos speak English. I've known some families in Taiwan who have hired OFWs to work as nannies, but also speaking English to the children so they could learn and improve. It also makes communication a lot easier, as English is pretty much the global language. A lot of them also work as elderly caregivers, and there are many agencies that do this kind of labor broking. They usually sign contracts, a year or two maybe, and if all goes well, they may sign on for longer. One downside of working as an OFW, from what I've seen at least, is that they don't get a lot of free time, which sucks. Typically, they get Sundays off, and many times if you walk around Taipei City on a Sunday afternoon, you will find many Filipinos hanging out together at parks, eating, drinking, having a good time. Is there a kind of stigma attached to OFWs? I believe yes. But I also believe there should not be one. If anything, they're basically expats, and they're doing honest work. Today's episode is presented by the new film, Decision to Leave, a movie release. From a mountain peak in South Korea, a climber plummets to his death. Did he jump, or was he pushed? When Detective Heijun arrives on the scene, he begins to suspect the dead man's wife. But as he digs deeper into the investigation, he finds himself trapped in a web of deception and desire. This twisted romance comes from Pak Chang-woo, 
the acclaimed director of Old Boy and The Handmaiden. Critics call Decision to Leave masterful. Variety raves, quote, After the world-conquering success of Parasite, your new, sublimely accomplished Korean thriller obsession is here, unquote. Don't miss the can prize-winning triumph that is now South Korea's best international film submission to the Academy Awards. Decision to Leave is now playing in New York and L.A., and then expands the theaters nationwide Friday. Brought to you by MUBI, M-U-B-I dot com. There have been a few instances where OFWs are treated poorly or unfairly, and that always gets me really angry. And this is a good place for me to seg into today's main topic. I know, finally! But again, background info is always important. For our first case, we will travel back in time to 2013. Joanna de Mafeliz was a young woman from the Philippines, only around 25 at the time. Her parents were living in Iloilo, located on the island of Panay, and she herself was living in Paranaque at the time, located in Metro Manila. These two places are more than 600 kilometers apart, and they're also on two different islands. Joanna's parents lived in a rural area, and they mostly did farming for a living. It's not much, but it was honest work. As for Joanna, she worked in the city, which probably meant she made decent money as she had enough to sustain herself and send some money back to her parents every month. This kind of arrangement worked for the Demafeliz family, until it didn't. In November of 2013, one of the most intense tropical cyclones, or what some might call typhoons, swept over parts of Asia, including Vietnam, Taiwan, and especially the Philippines. It was quite disastrous, resulting in thousands of people dead and more than 1,000 missing. Not only were there casualties, this typhoon also destroyed many farmlands, including the Demafeliz home in Iloilo. Joanna's parents lost their only source of income, and they had no idea what they could do. It wasn't just her parents. Some of her siblings were also affected. So Joanna, being a family-oriented young woman, decided it was her job to step up and help her family out during hard times. She decided she needed to find better work to help her family stay afloat. After applying and working tirelessly, she finally received some good news. She was going to work as an OFW in Kuwait. So Joanna set her plans in motion and left the Philippines in May of 2014, arriving in one of the richest countries in the world. Kuwait had a decent population of OFWs, and while some of them managed to get visa sponsorships from companies and corporations, the majority of the OFWs were usually hired for domestic services. In other words, cleaning the house, making food, running errands, that sort of thing. There were many instances of Filipinos getting mistreated or dying under mysterious circumstances while working as OFWs, and although Joanna was a bit worried, she decided she still had to try. If she didn't try, she would have to live with the knowledge of her not stepping up when she needed to. Her pay was far from extravagant, though, a base salary of $400 a month. This higher pay, though, 
came with strings attached, of course. As a domestic servant, her employers would legally be able to withhold her passport, which I guess is seen as a method of insurance. They didn't want somebody they personally sponsored to arrive in the country and just run away. And although they still could, they just probably wouldn't get very far without their passport. It seems a bit unethical, but that's how the rules were set. Her employers also had a bunch of house rules, but one that stood out to me involved them taking away her cell phone, only allowing her access to it once every three months. This sounds terrible. As if leaving your home and working abroad isn't terrible enough, you can't even use your phone during your daily downtime. Not just to kill time or relax, it also meant that communication with her family would be heavily restricted. As a person who specifically left the Philippines to help her family, this must have been a huge blow for her. Joanna was basically under house arrest. I can't really tell you who her employer was, but it was later found out that Joanna very likely worked with two different employers during her stay in Kuwait. It's not clear what life was like under her employers, but it must have been rough. You already know how little freedom she had to agree to in order to get that little bit of money every month. Either way, we do know that Joanna worked in Kuwait for at least two years. How do we know this? Joanna's family received occasional phone calls from Joanna, but the last call they would ever get from her would be in September of 2016, around two years after she arrived in Kuwait. In that call, Joanna had briefly mentioned that she had plans to work for a couple more years and then return home in 2018. Not much else was shared in regards to her employment situation, and that was that. Not long after that call, her family noticed something odd. Joanna's Facebook profile had been deleted. They tried getting in touch with her many times, but they were never able to reach her. So what do you do when someone you love seems to have vanished while working overseas? You either contact the police or the agency that helped set her up, and that's what they did. They first contacted the Overseas Workers' Welfare Administration, and then tried the Philippine Overseas Employment Administration. No luck, though. They were all unable to reach the recruitment agency Joanna went with, and it was later discovered that the establishment had closed down sometime after they helped Joanna. Now what? Honestly, not much they could do. The Demafadis family was already struggling with money. There's no way they could hire people to look for their daughter, let alone travel themselves to Kuwait to look for her. They decided to wait some more. Hopefully, it was all just a misunderstanding, and Joanna would resurface unharmed. As you may have already guessed, there is no happy ending to this story. In early 2018, Kuwait authorities showed up at an apartment unit because the owners or dwellers of the unit had some dues that needed to be paid. To their surprise, the place was abandoned, and it looked like it had been abandoned for quite a while. They decided to search the apartment to see if they could find anything useful, and for whatever reason, they opened up the freezer. Yes, they found Joanna de Mefeliz in the freezer, and it was clear that she had been dead for a while. They immediately reported their findings to the relevant authorities and soon discovered that this woman was an OFW by the name of Joanna. 
Filipino authorities were contacted, and everyone was extremely shocked. Long story short, it was believed that Joanna's second employers, those that the authorities were looking for, had killed Joanna sometime in late 2016 or early 2017, stuffed her in the freezer, and abandoned the apartment. An autopsy was performed, and it was noted that she had been tortured in multiple ways, but her ultimate cause of death was strangulation. So who were these monsters? Her employer was a couple named Nader Esam Asaf, a Lebanese citizen, and his wife, Mona Hassoun, a Syrian citizen. The local police got involved, Interpol got involved, and eventually the couple were found hiding in Syria. As the two were not Kuwaiti citizens, they were taken back to their respective countries, the husband back to Beirut, and the wife was held in Syria. The husband eventually confessed to murdering Joanna, and, surprise, surprise, both were convicted of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. Joanna's body was flown back to the Philippines in February of 2018. Her funeral took place on March 3rd in her hometown. Understandably, her family was devastated. They knew why Joanna left the Philippines in the first place, and it was unthinkable that this could happen to her. It's awful, really. This woman had a heart of gold and gave up so much to help her family. And yet, this shit happens. This incident didn't just affect the Memphis family, but also the entire country and ties between the Philippines and Kuwait. Then-President Duterte also seemed very angry, and it was stated that he brought graphic crime scene photos to press conferences, held them up, and yelled repeatedly, quote, Is this something wrong with your culture? Is there something wrong with your values? Unquote. Due to this incident, President Duterte imposed stricter regulations and partly banned Filipinos from working in Kuwait, and this led to thousands of OFWs returning to the Philippines in the next few days. Even if some were doing okay, they were still probably forced to return. But at the same time, I wonder how many people wanted to leave but couldn't and saw this as their way to finally go home. It's very upsetting seeing how so many people give up and sacrifice so much to work in a foreign place, get little respect, get abused, and have no means to stand up for themselves. Believe it or not, there are laws and organizations that are set up to protect OFWs, but clearly, they have not been working very well. Who is to blame? I guess lots of people are sort of responsible to a certain degree. For one thing, the terrible couple are to blame 100%. Some also said that recruitment agencies are not very well vetted, which in turn creates situations like Joanna's. Maybe they should have been following up. Maybe they should have been checking in and helping them with things. But there didn't seem to be any of that. May Joanna rest in peace, and those who harmed her, well, I don't care what happens to them, really. The next case follows a rather similar storyline, so unfortunately, there is no happy ending here either. Also, there is not quite as much information for this case, so I apologize in advance. Meet Jenilyn Villavende. Similarly to Joanna, her family was struggling to make ends meet in the Philippines. So like many others around her age, 26-year-old Jenilyn decided she wanted to step up and help her family out. 
She applied and worked with a recruiter who ended up finding her work as a domestic helper in Kuwait. Jenilyn was excited to be able to help her family. So in mid-2019, after all was finalized, she flew halfway around the world and arrived at her new employer's house, a husband and a wife duo. Her salary was around 300 to 400 USD per month, and her plan was to send back at least half of it to her family every single month. I cannot say for sure if things started out fine and then ended badly, but I have a strong feeling that things were never fine to begin with. Why? Janelyn arrived in mid-2019, say maybe June. Around September, she had contacted her recruitment agency and asked them to help relocate her or help her return to the Philippines. It didn't matter, she just wanted to get out. That's only around three months since she started working, which isn't a very long time at all. Things must have been pretty bad for her to want to leave. Jenilyn allegedly told the recruitment agency that she was being abused and underpaid. To me, that's a legit reason to either get someone to fix this issue or leave. Obviously, I would prefer the latter, but what did the recruitment agency do? Absolutely nothing. The last time Jenilyn's family heard from her was around October of 2019. I wouldn't be surprised if her employers were strict with her belongings and free time. It's like these people get off on having control over another human being. And if what she told the recruitment officers was true, then not only was her freedom being restricted, she was also being abused. After not hearing from her for a while, Jenilyn's family decided to call her to check up on her. Surprisingly, the call went through, but it was the wife who picked up the call. She told Jenilyn's family that she was busy and could not come to the phone right now, then just hung up on them. Super rude, and not to mention, very worrying. But what could anyone do? They decided to wait. Maybe Jenilyn would be able to call them back once she had a day off. Except that day never came. On December 28 of 2019, a young woman was rushed to a hospital in Kuwait. Her entire body and face was covered in bruises. But when the nurses tried to check her vitals and status, they realized that this woman was already dead and for God knows how long. No amount of medication or surgery could bring her back. This prompted an immediate investigation into the death of this woman, who of course, as we know, was Jenilyn Villavende. Her employers were both arrested immediately. According to her autopsy report, Jenilyn was being heavily abused on the regular. Like, before her old wounds and bruises would heal, she would get new ones on top of those. Not only was she physically and most definitely mentally abused, she was also sexually abused. For fuck's sake, these people. It's hard to imagine that they aren't professional serial killers, because who does this? You get a young woman who left her home, her family, everything she's ever known, to come to a foreign country to work for you, and you can't even be a decent person. And by decent person, I mean not abusing people. Like, okay, be rude, be nitpicky, be annoying, that's fine, but abuse? Officials also got involved and began looking into the recruitment agency, trying to understand 
why they never did anything to help this poor woman out, even when she proactively reached out for help. While sources never did indicate the real reason for them turning a blind eye, I bet the official story was something along the lines of, oh, we never expected it to be this bad. She was only three months in. We thought she was just homesick. Blah, blah, blah. Either way, they fucked up big time, and the agency should face some kind of punishment. At the time the article was published, it was said that they would very likely get shut down. But then again, how many more others are out there? Sending people out for work and then immediately pretending like they don't exist? Jenna Lynn's body was flown back to the Philippines on January 9, 2020. Her family members were, of course, absolutely shattered. As for the couple who did the deed, they went on trial about a year later, in late 2020. The wife, who was seen as the main abuser, was sentenced to death, but her husband, who was definitely in the know and complicit, was only sentenced to four years. That's kind of odd, right? Well, there were rumors going around saying that the husband was either a police officer or had ties to law enforcement which could explain why he got such a lenient sentence. Jenilyn's uncle had mixed feelings about this, as he felt that complete justice would mean the husband also got the death sentence as well. No, it wouldn't bring his niece back, but I guess it would bring him a sense of satisfaction, and also the knowledge that he will never be free and would never be able to subject another woman to this type of torture. Joanna and Jenilyn are not the only ones to face this kind of fate. There are plenty more, and not just from the Philippines. Why does this happen? Are regulations too lax? Are people just too horrible? Or are officials way too lazy? Probably a combination of all of the above. There seems to be a huge gap when it comes to the processing and handling of OFWs and it doesn't help that there are many illegal recruitment agencies out there hoping to make a quick buck. Even if they are legit agencies, some of them are known to be quite deceptive, saying one thing on the contract, but then using loopholes to get out of it later on. In a research conducted, only 63% of OFWs had some form of health insurance or medical allowance. Less than 50% were given paid sick leave and a little over 50% got paid for working overtime. OFWs that leave their country are extremely vulnerable, and in a sense, they can only rely on their employers or their recruitment agencies for help. So when both fail them, there's really not much they can do. Even when faced with difficulties, not many of them are willing to reach out for help. Some feel a sort of shame because this was their choice, asking for help almost feels like the wrong thing to do. Others may choose to stay quiet because filing a case would mean spending money. They're not making a ton of money to begin with, and most of them want to send money home. By spending money on filing a case against an employer or an agency, it kind of feels counterproductive. Basically, the system is extremely flawed. I'm not saying put a stop to OFW, because a lot of people really do depend on this kind of work to make ends meet, and obviously not everyone has had terrible experiences. 
But isn't it time to really work on these regulations, provide more assistance to those outside of their country? What can they do to make these experiences pleasant and safe? So there you have it. Two women who traveled far and wide in hopes of a better future, but both ended up returning home in caskets. I do realize this episode was not entirely focused on Kuwait, but when I came across these stories, I felt like I had to write about it. Kuwait is certainly not the only place in the world where such abuse and maltreatment takes place. That's for sure. Filipinos are also not the only ones to face such abuse either. As a country with so many foreign workers, though, you would think this would be a priority. Some say that the best export from the Philippines is its people, and I can see why. I know I probably don't have to say this, but please be kind. We all have our own struggles. And honestly, just because somebody else works for you, that doesn't make you better than them. Thank you for tuning in. I hope this episode was presented in a respectful manner, because I feel nothing but respect for them, and I deeply wish they did not have to go through all this misery. Please stay safe, and remember, if you ever do need help, reach out. You have friends, you have family, and, why not, you have me. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.